0: Welcome to the DTB podcast for October 2015, volume 53, number 10. My name's David Physically and I'm DTB's deputy editor.
1: And I'm James Cave. I'm editor-in-chief.
0: Our editorial this month discusses possible changes to routine antenatal anti-D prophylaxis.
1: So what's the issue? Currently as it stands, because of our concerns about rhesus disease in the newborn, we routinely screen for and treat with anti-D all women who are rhesus negative when pregnant.
0: But that doesn't mean that all their offspring will be rhesus positive.
1: Correct, only 40% of babies of rhesus negative mums will be rhesus negative themselves. But at the moment
0: everybody gets.
1: But everyone gets the anti-D at the moment.
0: So what's changed and what's possibly gonna happen in the future? So
1: the cunning thing here is since the mid 90s, they've discovered that they can actually detect non-cellular fetal DNA in the mother's bloodstream from as early as 11 weeks. And that allows them to actually assess the rhesus status of the baby at that stage. And obviously only then provide anti-D to those mothers who have a rhesus positive baby when they're rhesus negative.
0: So a targeted approach where you do some form of assessment and then only give it if you get a result that's
1: correct and this has been the policy in Denmark since 2010 and Holland started doing this in 2011. And how far has it got here? Well it it hasn't got anywhere here in the sense of being policy but NICE is looking at this as possibly something which might be introduced later and they should be reporting back on this in 2016.
0: But the theory being that the money that you save on the anti-D and the safety issue of not having to give a blood product could result in savings overall, which would fund the necessary testing.
1: Correct. And that's the great thing about this is that you reduce, I mean, it's obviously a very small risk to mums to be given anti-D, but it is a blood product. So you reduce their exposure to that, but at the same time, you're targeting those mums who need it.
0: So we wait for NICE guidance sometime in 2016.
1: October 2016 they say so we can expect it March 2017 I expect.
0: Okay interesting development and our first main article this month looks at the use of melatonin for sleep problems in children with neurodevelopmental disorders. So I suppose first question is what group of children are we looking at and why?
1: So this is largely attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and Autism and both of these sets of children do have significant sleep disorders, ranging from a number of issues from the time it takes them to get to sleep, the number of times they wake at night, and also the total length of sleep that they might have over the course of a single night.
0: And the sort of approaches or treatment options that we currently have?
1: Well, obviously sleep hygiene is still something which you know is really important and what's interesting looking at these studies the studies where they've used sleep hygiene as as one of the arms of treatment it does demonstrate actually to be quite effective so you can see that if on an average set of for example, one study an average uh, length of time from onset of sleep was 90 minutes which is any parent can imagine 90 minutes of your child not going to sleep you know particularly if they've got autism or adhd must be quite hard Good sleep hygiene will reduce that perhaps by 30 minutes or more. And what we've discovered from this study looking at melatonin is that you can then reduce it further by perhaps another 16, 20 minutes or so.
0: So that's where that begs the question, why melatonin?
1: Well, this is it. And it's felt that the issue with these neurodevelopmental disorders in children is that there's something about the circadian rhythm, something about their melatonin, which isn't functioning in the same way as it might in other children.
0: So at the moment in the UK, we have a single licensed melatonin product, but that is only licensed for use in adults age 55 and over for short-term use in primary insomnia. So what we're looking at here is a completely either off-label or unlicensed use.
1: Yeah, so I mean, for many years before we even had this licensed product for adults over 55, there have been a number of Uh, unlicensed preparations, considerable variability in cost and in bioavailability and anyone who's looked after autistic children will know that this is a real minefield for GPs to know what to prescribe and how to prescribe and the need to liaise with your consultant colleagues and this has always been really paramount. But we now have this licensed product for adults and of course the question then is, would this be a better product to use in an off-label way in children? Uh, Because at least you have a drug, if you like, that's gone through all the licensing issues that are required of it to become a product in the first place.
0: So you can be fairly reassured about manufacturing quality because of- Precisely. Product license. So the evidence is that melatonin, well, first question, did we find much evidence?
1: Yes, there, there is certainly evidence to demonstrate that this has an impact on sleep both time to get off to sleep and how long children sleep for over the course of the night if you look at the numbers very often we're talking about 20 minutes an hour perhaps it's you know in the scale of things it's not making a huge impact and as i said earlier i think what the evidence does show is that if you can get sleep hygiene in place as well you're much more likely to get a bigger benefit than just using melatonin on its own.
0: So lots to do about checking how the child is going off to bed all the stimulants television screens and everything else that might be interrupting the chance of going to sleep. That's
1: it I think one of the other interesting things from the studies was that if you look at long-term studies where they follow these children up and see who are still taking medication one two or three years later and of course, to test whether melatonin is still being helpful, most guidelines suggest that you have a week off the treatment, usually in the summer, to see if the child still needs it. What's interesting is if you look at the numbers of children still taking melatonin two, three years after. It's it's around the 60-70% mark. So a number of children are coming off this medication with each year.
0: But there are some practical issues, which we pick up in the article, about if you are going to prescribe it, making sure that it's done as part of a shared care process. You're clear on which product you're using and why you're using that product and also whether the parents and child are involved in a conversation around off label and unlicensed use?
1: I think, you know, obviously we know GMC guidance is quite clear on that now. If you're going to use a drug off-label and if you're going to use unlicensed preparation, certainly we need to discuss that with the parents, make sure they understand the issues around that. And as you quite rightly say, this is an area we should be working with our secondary care colleagues on shared care, making sure that all those things are being done that should be done for these children and making sure they're getting the other support both for the parents and
0: for the children. Okay, thank you very much. And our second article this month looks at a herbal medicinal product, green tea extract, which has been given market authorization for the treatment of external anogenital warts. So, again, I suppose going back to basics, this is a common problem. We we know that uh, it's the second most commonly diagnosed sexually transmitted infection, certainly in the UK.
1: What options have we got
0: to treat at the moment?
1: We have a couple of well-established products, pedophilotoxin and Imitquimod. When I first looked at the the data behind us, I thought, green tea, you know can it really work? And, and I think one of the interesting things about this, this is a, a compound that does work. It seems to be uh, quite effective at treating anogenital warts. It seems to have about a 50% total clear up at about 12 weeks and the rate of recurrence is similar to the other products that we use.
0: I mean the problem with all existing medicinal products that you mentioned is that the occurrence rates tend to be a problem and also clear up rate aren't great, so mm-hmm. nothing works brilliantly. Uh, but here we have one that seems to do, do something, the downside is that it's more frequent application. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, it's three times a day, and I think, I suspect if you talk to a lot of genitourinary doctors, they'll say the big issue for this is often actually, because often patients will be doing this themselves, the big issue is often trying to get patients to, to do it properly. And of course, what you can achieve in a, in a study, particularly three times a day, and what you can achieve in real life might, might be very different.
0: So for a practical problem to, to take into account, any obvious harms that makes it different from the other products?
1: Not that I'm aware, David, no. No, I mean, obviously these drugs all work by being considerable irritants and you can expect about an 85% rate of erythema and uh, soreness perhaps in these patients. So they're not without the same sorts of problems as you see with imiquimod and pedophilotoxin. I think the difference is that there are some slightly quirky things with this. There's some concern over using it in patients with severe liver disease and currently or not enough evidence for us to be able to be able to use it in pregnancy, for example.
0: But presumably that's due to lack of data as opposed to any...
1: Correct. I mean, there has been some work on animals which has raised the possibility that there's an issue, um, but we have no or very little evidence.
0: So just comparing it back with the other two products, podophyllotoxins only licensed for genital warts, not anal warts. Yeah, this is an
1: odd one, isn't it? It's typical. Once again, we've got to be careful here. So podophyllotoxin, you shouldn't be... Well, it's not licensed for use in anal warts. But, of course, it is often used off-label in that situation.
0: But this and a are both licensed for
1: analgenic. Correct. Correct.
0: Great. Thank you very much. To read this and any of our articles, please visit our website, dtb.bmj.com. And if you have any comments or suggestions for future articles, please do email us at dtbeditor at bmj.com. And thank you for listening.